Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. My guest today is political scientist Larry Sabato. Professor Sabato is the director of the University of Virginia's Center for Politics, which includes Sabato's Crystal Ball, one of the foremost election forecasting sites in the United States. Professor Sabato is the author of many books, including A More Perfect Constitution, The Kennedy Half Century, and most recently, he was the lead editor on Trumped, the 2016 election that broke all the rules. He regularly appears on national news outlets such as Fox, CNN, and MSNBC, offering invaluable insight and analysis of polls and elections. I've been following his work since my grad school days at the University of Kentucky, and so I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with him today. Professor Sabato, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You know, I'd like to start with your most recent book, Trump, the 2016 election that broke all the rules. So what were the main rules that the election broke, and how was Donald Trump able to successfully break them? Well, the first rule, obviously, is that uh, that uh, party leaders have a great influence in choosing the nominee. And when you have loads of endorsements from people who tend to guide uh, voters in their districts or states, you have a very good chance to be nominated. Well, uh, the party leaders uh, were for anybody but Donald Trump and maybe Ted Cruz, but especially Donald Trump. And yet he beat 16 other uh, arguably much better qualified candidates, at least most of them were much better qualified in a traditional sense, had had experience in major office. So that was rule number one. Rule number two would be uh, the convention. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, I've been to every convention in both parties since and including 1976. Uh, uh, the Republican convention was one of the least impressive I've ever attended. It, it drifted. It had uh, nothing but Trumps in significant speaking roles, and, and other people who spoke, like Ted Cruz, didn't follow the program. Um, and Hillary Clinton's was much better organized, uh, much more professional, um, and yet we know who won. And then you know, in the general election, uh, it, it's just really incredible. Uh, he had relatively little of the traditional campaign. Hillary Clinton had tons of it. Uh, that is the data analytics and high spending on polling and everything else. And uh, and we know what happened there. And those are just three examples. You know, do you agree with so what I think is sort of the conventional wisdom concerning the Democrats' fel failure to win the White House, that while the party ignored their base, they nominated an incredibly unpopular candidate, and so that resulting lack of engagement and turnout, along with maybe uh, a little more than small amount of hubris in the Clinton camp, sort of led to her defeat? There are so many reasons for her defeat, and you know we have tons of them mentioned in, in our book, Trumped. Uh, one of them certainly was that she didn't have any real message for the white working class that had been voting Democratic. Now, many of them had already switched to the Republican Party long, long ago, or they were the children of Reagan voters. Uh, but uh, the ones who had remained 
uh, were disgruntled for various reasons, economic and otherwise, uh, some of them for social issue reasons. And uh, clearly Clinton just didn't aim her campaign at them. She took uh, too much for granted in those blue wall states. And goodness knows her campaign did. Uh, Even up to Election Day, they were absolutely certain that they were carrying Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and and some other states. They knew they were going to lose Iowa. They thought they might lose Ohio, but they thought they could also win it under uh, certain conditions. So... They, they were misled by their polling. They were misled by their assumptions about the campaign. And, and no question, Hillary Clinton would not be on anybody's list of outstanding candidates from American history. So, you know, kind of moving from the past into the near-term future, I've been hearing a lot about the possibility of Democrats maybe taking the House in 2018. And I'm wondering, well, is that just kind of wishful thinking on the part of the party and, and some in the more liberal parts of the media, or do you think the Democrats really have a shot? I think they have a shot. It, it's more realistic to take the House, frankly, than to take the Senate, given the seats that are up there. You know, would I bet on the Democrats taking the House today? No, uh, for lots of different reasons. But if uh, the anti-Trump fervor continues on the Democratic side and if they can produce uh, early and absentee voting like they did yesterday in uh, Kansas 4, that special election for the House, they lost it, but they, they lost it by relatively little compared to uh, the past election results. It's possible that they could narrowly win it. They'll certainly gain seats. I don't think anybody would, would dispute that at this point. Democrats will gain seats. They have to gain about 24 net in order to uh, win the House, at least as it exists today. The Senate is is much more difficult. Although, again, um, you know, I would have bet at one time that Republicans could come close to 60 votes in the Senate, uh, given the seats that are up in 2018. I think it's now much more likely that they'll be lucky to gain a few seats rather than many seats, again, because of Trump's unpopularity. Now, could something happen that makes Trump very popular between now and 2018? Anything's possible. We'll see. It's a long way to go. So that you would you would bet that the Democrats would probably have a better chance in in terms of the Senate, maybe in 2020 than than in 2018. Yes. If you look at the at the seats that are up in 2018 and compare it to the seats that are up in 2020, just on that basis, they have a better chance. And, you know, again, nobody knows what's going to happen in 2020. Maybe Trump wins a second term much as he won the first or maybe he does better or maybe, you know, he's a one termer. It depends on what happens at the presidential level, uh, as we saw in 2016, continuing a trend that we've noticed for some time. Uh, there were there were no Senate seats that that uh, went to the party opposite to the party carrying uh, the White House in that state. So uh, the the White House contest will have a great deal to do with the Senate results in 2020. Now, of course, one advantage I would guess that Democrats would have in 2020 is it's not a midterm election because Democratic voters tend not to turn out in very high numbers in midterms. And I'm wondering why why do you think that is? And do you think that maybe the Trump presidency, along with unified Republican control, will be enough to get these voters to the polls in in larger numbers than we've seen in the 2018 midterms? 
Uh, to the first question, uh, there are many reasons why Democrats don't vote, vote in significant numbers. A lot of it is educational level, income, age. Uh, for example, uh, the more senior uh, one's age, the more likely it is that one's voting Republican, and, and older voters tend to turn out in every election, not just presidential. That's not true for young people and minorities who tend to be substantially Democratic. Uh, can 2018 be much more democratic? Well, just remember 2006. It was a midterm election. Uh, Republicans were in charge of, of both houses. Well, they lost both houses in the in the midterm election. So yes, it can happen. So that that's sort of what what's sometimes called a, a wave election, right? Those sort of things that analysts don't really see coming until very soon before, and it sort of shocks everyone. And so, do you think that? Maybe we're seeing the conditions that are favorable to a 2018 wave election? Well, this is April of the year prior to the election year. So we have so many months and events to go that I, I, no one could fairly call 2018 a wave or not a wave because we don't have enough information. All we can say is right now, Democratic activists are more energized than I've seen them in, in a long time, maybe since 2006. Uh, it's based on their um, feelings about Donald Trump and his administration, uh, their anger about last year's election. And, and if that continues, if, 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 if that continues, then certainly uh, you'll see an effect at the polls. But we don't know whether it will. No one knows. Now, do you think that the media is making too much of these special elections? I mean, is there, is there any kind of a relationship between the sort of results we see in those and what we might see in a, in, in a general election, a regular election? Just tomorrow in the crystal ball, we have a, a very thorough analysis of special elections. And that's one of the points we make, that uh, quite often uh, – the media and others, uh, political activists, make too much of special elections. And then, of course, you know why. They have to fill the time, whether it's uh, uh, an intense period like elections or whether it's not an intense period like, you know, now where the special elections are few and far between and and not many of them really are very significant. But, you know, you did see quite a swing to the Democrats in Kansas for you may or may not see that in Georgia 6 coming next week. It's possible. Uh, certainly the Democrats are going to do quite well and get into the, to the runoff, but we, and maybe there won't be a runoff. Maybe he crosses 50. I mean, you just never know about these things because special elections are squirrely. Uh, they're, they're driven by the events of the moment. Those events may or may not be extended through the actual election period. So, People should always be cautious about overinterpreting special elections. Now, if there's a pattern developing over time, you feel more confident in reaching certain conclusions. But we're a long way from that. Sure. Now, going back to just in general House elections, one of the reasons that you often hear about why House seats tend to be so safe is gerrymandering. And according to some people, the fundamental reason why the Republican Party has done so well in Congress, at least in the House since 2008, is that they focused their efforts on winning state house races, and then they used those state-level majorities to engineer a, a really unprecedented number of safe seats for Republicans in Congress. And I'm wondering if you agree with that, or do you think this view is wrong or maybe incomplete in some way? That's not the only reason 
why Republicans have done uh, well at congressional elections. It's certainly one reason. You know, in some states, Democrats have gained the advantage from redistricting. It all depends on who's in charge. But given the fact that Barack Obama's two midterms were a disaster for the Democratic Party and that one of those midterms, arguably the worst one, uh, was in 2010, which was the key year for the 2011 redistricting, I think that is a sizable part of the explanation for the Republican dominance at the state level, both governorships and state legislative posts. Um, and it's going to take a long time to reverse that. It, it really is, is a matter of Democrats doing very well in gubernatorial and state legislative elections in both 2018 and 2020, and then they'll have a chance to draw more of the lines in 2021. We, we don't have any idea what the balance would be, but they would certainly do better than they did in 2011. Yeah. Now, President Obama, along with former Attorney General Eric Holder, have sort of suggested that that's going to be a focus of a lot of their efforts. And I'm wondering, do you think that that sort of enthusiasm that so many voters, Democratic voters had, certainly for President Obama, is that the sort of thing do you think is transferable down to those lower level races? Or can do you think there's a realistic chance that Democrats can have the same sort of success at that level as Republicans have? Again, it's it will be a reaction to Trump. It have relatively little to do with Eric Holder or even Barack Obama. After all, Barack Obama uh, could not help Democrats except when he was on the ballot in 2008 and 2012. The Democratic Party had its uh, had its bench bench virtually wiped out in both the 2010 and 2014. So I, I'm sure Republicans aren't quaking in their boots about the fact that Obama will try to try to do something about uh, about redistricting uh, coming up uh, in the in these state elections. Uh, it will be a matter of people focusing on uh, Donald Trump. Right. Now, what about President, speaking of President Trump, what about his approval ratings? I mean, they're they're pretty they're pretty disastrously low, uh, you know, worse than most of his predecessors. And I'm wondering, though, given that coalition he was able to bring together, does it really matter as much for Donald Trump, these kind of ratings, as it would have for a more conventional candidate and president, do you think? Uh, you're right in saying it won't matter as much. It certainly will matter, but it won't matter as much. Uh, I mean, the fact is, as he, as he so often has boasted, uh, the 300-plus the electoral votes were a much more substantial showing than one would have expected from the popular vote, which he lost by 2.86 million. But the way the popular vote is distributed and the way the Electoral College vote is distributed suggests that uh, Republicans, uh, maybe increasingly, can win the Electoral College while losing the popular vote or uh, reflecting the, the polls uh, not be popular. Uh, and, and President Trump could do it again in 2020, depending on the conditions. What, what's the economy? Are we involved in any unpopular foreign wars? Are there truly major scandals that have entangled the president and, and the president's family? These are all things we cannot possibly know yet, but they will be critical to the outcome in 2020. 
Right. Well, what about the argument that some you hear on the left sometimes, uh, the hopeful argument, I guess, if you're on the left, as I am, that demographics are sort of destiny here and that when you take a look at the changing nature of the electorate, that the Trump election was kind of a last gasp from the angry white men, basically. But as the country changes, the Republicans are going to increasingly lose their hold on a number of uh, even red states that, you know, like Texas and so forth. Do you, do you think there's something to that? In the long, long term, of course there is, because somewhere around 2042, that's an estimate, uh, the, the population in the United States becomes majority minority. That is not the majority of the registered electorate or the actual turning out electorate. Uh, but it's it's of the population. So in the long run, yes, and that assumes Republicans will not be more attractive to minorities. Uh, now, having said that, uh, I don't think you can conclude that this is a last gasp or that 2016 was. <laughs> you could have another last gasp in 2020. Uh, you know, again, you look at, at where, uh, where uh, Trump did well, and it isn't just that he flipped Ohio by a wide margin, and Iowa by a wide margin, and Pennsylvania by a decent margin. Uh, Michigan was extremely close. Wisconsin uh, uh, close, but not as close as Michigan. It was the fact that he nearly won Minnesota that made an impact on me. He nearly won Maine and didn't get one electoral vote out of Maine. He nearly won New Hampshire. I'm not saying he can repeat all those in 2020, but if you're a Democrat and you want to see Donald Trump ousted in, in 2020, you would be very, very foolish not to pay close attention to what really happened in 2016. You can focus on the popular vote all you want. You can look at the demographics and say, you know, the, the, uh, the future is ours. Uh, maybe it is, but which future? In what year? Where? There can be just as many states that were blue that are turning red in terms of electoral votes than there are states that were red turning blue. And we don't know what's the tipping point for any given state. So, you know, I'm not being very definitive with you, but that's on purpose. We can't know what we don't know. And I think we all relearned that lesson in the fall of 2016. Uh, we thought we knew things we didn't know. We thought that patterns were set that weren't set. And, and so we need to be, we need to be cautious. Sure. You know, well, I know I'm running a little short on, on time, but I have one final question for you. For for people who are interested in kind of understanding these issues in a perhaps a deeper way than they might get from just turning on the TV, uh, you know, polling, public opinion, that sort of thing, are there any resources, uh, aside from your work, obviously, which I definitely recommend people check out, that you would recommend that people take a look at uh, on a regular basis, whether they're books, sites, apps, podcasts, what have you? Well, I certainly uh, want to uh, to uh, plug the crystal ball. I hope everybody listening to this podcast will sign up for it. The price is right. It's free. Uh, all you need is an email. So just Google Sabado's crystal ball and boom, you'll get it every Thursday morning around 6 a.m. and during election seasons more frequently. Um now, I, you know, I'm looking, I'm turning around and seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books on my shelves. And of course, I have uh, book, bookmarks uh, uh, probably in the hundreds at this point. 
it's difficult for me to narrow it down to to just a few uh, examples. I, I guess I'm going to be parochial, and I'm going to push my colleague's Kyle, Kyle Condick's uh, book on Ohio, uh, The Bellwether, uh, Why Ohio Picks the President. It sure, certainly proved that again this year. The margin was much larger than the national margin, but the trends that were key in Ohio were were actually the critical trends that elected Donald Trump president. Oh, you know, I, I, look, I'm sure everybody has things like the Almanac of American Politics and the CQ Almanacs and the, these invaluable uh, books that serve as references for all of us on a daily basis. Um, you know, I, I gather as many of those as I can. I look at, oh, God, I look at so many sites. It's what I do all day long. Um, the Atlas of U.S. Presidential Elections, Dave Light's uh, site uh, decision desk hq i think is very good daily coast elections is very good uh, the green papers uh, covers presidential primaries uh, in a way nobody else does uh tegan goddard's political wire i could go on and on and on and and look if you go to three or four or five of these sites you're going to be led to you know another 50 or 100 of them you'll never want for anything to read in this field because so many people are interested in it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, we, we will close. Professor Settle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, they were excellent questions, and I was delighted to have a conversation with you. And good, good luck with the podcast, and I'm delighted you're doing it. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Professor Sabato. You know, I was really pleased that he was able to find the time in his really incredibly packed schedule to talk with me. I mean, this is a guy who does national news stuff all the time, and so it was great that we could have him on the show. Uh, but because he had a run after 20 minutes, uh, we thought that we'd supplement the interview by including some answers and responses to listener mail, which is something we haven't done for a little while. Um, but before we get to that, I should mention that this episode is sponsored by Dollar Shave Club, the smarter choice. And with Dollar Shave Club, you get a great shave at a great price delivered right to your door. Now, I'm, before I heard about Dollar Shave Club, I hadn't shaved with a blade for you know a long time. And it was essentially because I got tired of paying so much for those replacement cartridges or you know having to go to the thing and have them unlock them from the special vault that they keep them in because they... Make you feel so dirty, kind of. You know, exactly. Uh, well, Dollar Shave Club gives you a great razor and blades and they've got this Dr. Carver Shave Butter, which is a whole lot better than the shaving cream that I used to use. So, Jay, I know you've used Dollar Shave Club. What do you think about it? I I, I think it's it's uh, fantastic. Um, you know what I was impressed with also the the razor that that you get. I mean it's it's not some little dinky plastic razor. This is a serious uh, hefty uh, uh, razor handle, and it's 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 great. I, I get the closest shave uh, that I've I've gotten, uh, even you know compared to the other uh, much more expensive uh, products, and uh, it's it saves me the the hassle of making that trip out. Um, and, uh, I, I recommend it, uh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, and of course like I said, it'd been a while since I shaved with a blade. I was looking, I counted, you know, five blades. I was like, wow. So this is not just some kind of, you know, cheap, like disposable kind of dual blade thing. You got, you got blades exactly, all over yeah. the place here and it's a, a really great shave and, you know, uh, 
you too. Can- As I said before, Mike, I actually look forward to shaving. Yeah. And that's just, wow. You know, that says, that says a lot right there, I think. So I, I think you should definitely check them out. You can make the smarter choice by joining Dollar Shave Club. And for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor, that big weighty thing Jay was just talking about and a tube of the Dr. Carver Shave Butter, which I love so much, for only $5 with free shipping. And after that, raises are just a few bucks a month. That's way less than you'd pay in the store. And in your first month box, you get that awesome weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of that shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at that regular low price. There are no hidden fees, no commitments, and you can cancel anytime you like. Join the club today at dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. Okay, so let's get to our listener mail. Yeah, let's have it. Been piling up for a while, so I'm looking forward to it. Okay, first, one of our many international listeners who writes, My name is Becky, and I'm a new listener. I currently live in Jerusalem, Israel, and have dual American and Israeli citizenship. In your next podcast, can you discuss the different options, obstacles, and priorities the U.S.-Israel relationship faces with President Trump now leading? Even discussing the possibilities of moving the embassy of the United States and Israel to Jerusalem and what implications it would have for both countries. On a personal note, many Americans who want the embassy moved don't understand the violent repercussions that will occur and the amount of terror attacks that will take place around the country, including stabbings, bombings, and car rammings. I walk by the American consulate in Jerusalem every day on my way to work, and I can't help but imagine what it would be like if Trump decided to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Well, that, I think it's, you know, it's a, a really a good question. And I think, you know, I would say, you know, my, the first thing that, that I always do when we're, we're talking about uh, politics and it's something regional international is uh, defer to the people who are actually there who actually live there uh, and so I would say Becky you probably know a whole lot more a lot more depth a lot more detail uh, about this issue than what we do uh, sitting back here in Ohio um, that said I think what what I, I can talk about is is the fact that the promise to to move uh, the embassy to Jerusalem has been sort of an evergreen one that um, uh, American politicians have have uh, put out there while they're campaigning um, for a time in memoriam. I mean, this goes goes way back, uh, and it has never actually happened. Uh, mostly for sort of the reasons that uh, uh, that that you. Um, uh, mention right there. Uh, it's often, I think, a, a way to appeal to American Jewish voters uh, who'd like to see it there. But I think there's always sort of assurances to the Israelis uh, that, listen, we understand the position that that would would uh, uh, would place you in. Uh, and it, it would not happen without sort of the sign off of uh, the Israeli government as well. So um, that's that's my sense looking at it from from where I sit uh, here in Cleveland. Um, as as you said, I think you've got a whole lot whole lot better perspective on it than uh, than what we do uh, because of where you are. You know, I, I would agree certainly in terms of implications. Uh, uh, Becky being right there on the ground absolutely has a lot better perspective on that aspect. You know, I would also say though, I think it's understandable for people to be, even though this is an evergreen thing, as you said with with conservative politicians, that 
under the Trump administration. Boy, I, think, I think President Obama promised to move the embassy too, didn't he? I don't recall that, but maybe you're right off the check on that. Well, but we can I, look I, it I up. Recall, but, yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, you know, President Trump appointed an ambassador to Israel who's a pretty staunch Zionist, a much further right than any previous ambassador to Israel that I can recall, certainly, and certainly in recent memory. And so I think that raised a lot of concerns. And I think that reads as a kind of a larger concern about uh, the lack of coherence in Donald Trump's foreign policy, domestic policy, policy in general. And when you have that sort of all over the place policy with mixed me mixed messages and so forth, people get understandably worried. And I, I think you could you can make an argument that in foreign policy, it's important to give your allies a sense of where exactly you stand, and it's easy to send the wrong messages. For instance, there were people who argued that uh, that the Bush administration way back sent the wrong message to Saddam Hussein with some of their policy pronouncements, which kind of led to the, you know, led to the invasion, which led to the led to the war and so forth. So, I, you know, we need to be really careful about these things. Uh, and I think in two areas, particularly, Jay, I imagine you'll agree with me here. One, in the area of finance, the president can say something that can move markets. Uh, and also in the area of foreign policy. And this is my concern with the Trump administration. He's just sort of a shoot from the hip kind of guy, not in just in what he says, but sometimes in some of the people he surrounds himself with that our allies get understandably concerned. And even if in the end, his foreign policy is fairly traditional Republican, sure. some of these things that he says cause a lot of concern and can, can I think, do some real damage. You know, I, I would I would agree, but I, I would, again I wouldn't think the the embassy issue would be one of them, just because it's uh, there would be a whole lot of steps that would have to to happen. I think before that would 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 uh, okay would take place. Um, now, as far as the the overall the the bigger question about the American Israeli relationship, um, again, I mean, I think Becky probably has a better sense of. Of of what the feeling is is there, uh, you know, and, and this is something I'd be curious about is, uh, you know, do Israelis feel different uh, about America now after the Obama administration, um, uh, which which in in many cases was was not friendly uh, to the, the the state of Israel? Um, uh, do they they believe that the, the Trump administration is is there a a different sense on the ground? And that's something like. We can't tell, but uh, certainly it's something Trump has promised that that America will be a a better ally uh, than it had been uh, under the previous administration. Well, I, I would I obviously take issue with the, the the idea that we were a bad ally, but but, but that aside, I think sort of sold him out at the UN. Well, I I think that that aside. Uh, that we need to think about, you know, what our overall objectives are. Our overall objectives are not to make friends for the sake of making friends. Our overall objectives are our peace and prosperity. I mean, and so in that sense, you know, Donald Trump talking about uh, America first, I, 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 I think that the phrase is, is noxious for various reasons, a lot of them historical. You're right, We're but, historical. Yeah. But I think one of the problems that we've had in foreign policy, especially in the Middle East, is I don't know that there's been 
the sort of coherence that I would like to see. And in part, I guess I give presidents a little bit of, of a pass on that because there are both international and domestic pressures. A lot of folks on the left like to point about the power of the Israeli lobby. And certainly that is a very powerful uh, element in American politics. And I think that it has pulled American politics in regard to Israel further than further away from what it should be, which I think is to try to do more to promote some sort of a viable two-state solution. And so I think that's been a big problem. But there are a lot of countervailing pressures here. It's, it's certainly difficult, but I think it's even more difficult when you have a president who comes in with, with just not only no experience, but just seemingly to embrace chaos as an operating theory. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I agree. Chaos is bad. Yeah. I'd agree with you there. Especially so. in foreign <laughs> policy and financial markets. Yeah. So anyway, moving on. Next, we have Matthew, who writes in part, I've been listening to you guys religiously since October, and I agree with both of you often. Um, which, that's nice. Um, I'm a self-declared blue blood, blue blood Democrat, originally from Illinois, very liberal, but now I live in Kansas, very conservative, so my politics have changed towards some conservative views due to my environment. I just wanted to ask one question about the current healthcare hysteria sleeping our politically in-tune nation. Why did the Democrats not have a bill ready when the conservative bill inevitably failed? It seems that they are just sitting by and not contributing anything to try and fix this mess. There are so many Democrats and conservatives who would gain from a responsible bill that actually fixes the ACA and doesn't destroy health care for millions, but actually helps suffering American people. Well, you know, I agree, man. You got an answer for you. Yeah, I, <laughs> I certainly agree. Uh, and, and we talked about this in uh, a little bit in the Sunday show that uh, a lot of times a big policy is passed and it's not perfect. In fact, every time a big policy is passed, it's not perfect. And while you can make some changes through the regulatory process, because typically when legislation is passed, it's passed giving regulators a fair amount of discretion to, to do these things. But there are some things you can't fix in the regulatory process. You can't, you know, uh, uh, smooth out. And so a legislation has to be passed. And that didn't happen with Obamacare. It's not going to happen with Obamacare. And, and and that's the problem. And so the reason why, uh, certainly Democrats have a lot of ideas to fix parts of Obamacare, but the way Congress works is if you're in the minority party, it doesn't matter what legislation you have. In fact, there are Democrats who actually have introduced some legislation, but it never gets past the committee stage because the majority party always makes sure that that never gets anywhere, basically. Yeah. So, and there, there are also some rival Republican uh, pieces out there, yeah. too, I think. But I think that points to that larger problem is you have this kind of this sort of winner take all mentality, this zero sum game mentality, a mentality where each side is so desperate to make sure that the other side doesn't have anything that looks like a positive accomplishment that they put destroying the, the credibility of the other side uh, ahead of trying to fix legislation that is always going to be imperfect. And, you know, that's not always how Congress worked, but it's how Congress has worked for a while now. And I think both Democrats and Republicans are, 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 are guilty of it. I would argue certainly that Republicans are more guilty of it. And Jay might take issue with that, but, but certainly it, yeah, but certainly it's a problem, you know? And so, yeah, I think, well, and, you know, I think that, yeah, the thing to understand is these pieces of legislation are introduced but under the way uh, the 
the uh, the Congress works is it is at the discretion of the uh, committee chairman. First of all, it goes to a committee to refer it to another committee, uh, and it can sit there for a while. Uh, afterwards, it's up to the committee chairman to schedule hearings, and that committee chairman can schedule them or not schedule them. I, I think I think I'm right on that, Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there are some states uh, that require a, at least one hearing on every introduced bill. I, I don't believe there's any congressional requirement for that. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's what it comes down to. Now, the way the way it works in the real world too is uh, typically you're not going to get a, a Democrat uh, a piece uh, of legislation passed in the Republican um, Congress. What you might get, though, is a uh, Republican bill that takes many of the same uh, language uh, can be very similar uh, to that. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's a complete there's no exchange of ideas. Uh, but I think you just this is just from from you know my experience working in the process. You don't see that coming up in terms of here's this bill. Here's this bill. Let's let's, you know, sort them out. It's sort of here's the Republican bill. That's the vehicle. That's the one that's going to pass. Uh, are there pieces and parts we can pull from the the uh, uh, opponents' legislation to make it more palatable to get the numbers we need? Uh, perhaps. Uh, again, the 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 way Congress has has worked lately, that just hasn't been happening. Um, but there's there's nothing that, that you know, I guess, rules based or law legally that would stop that from happening. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's just so much about taking credit or assigning blame, yeah. and so it. it Given given that uh, reality that that that's been you know the case for a long time now that it's really difficult for like you said something that has sort of the brand of the Democrats to come to come through in a Republican a Congress or or vice versa certainly but but you're right and there are also I mean we should we should we should add there are plenty of other uh, acts uh, that Congress passes that are passed in a bipartisan manner sure. um, that aren't I mean terribly controversial. Uh, and that follow that that procedure. And it's again, it's still typically the Republican bill or or whoever controls that house uh, that is the vehicle just because that person then gets to take the credit. Yeah. Um, but there are there's there's on the one hand, there on a lot of other run of the the mill issues, there's more bipartisanship than a lot of people realize. Yeah, it's just that the news, there's no, I mean, there's no incentive to uh, right. to talk about. Stuff, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Uh, where, where people are agreeing. And, you know, but then at the last part of what Matthew asked, you know, talk, he talked about uh, uh, concerns about destroying healthcare for millions and, and, and so forth. And I think, you know, this kind of highlights the problem that congressional Republicans are having. And they're, they're trying again to come up with a, uh, with a replacement repeal and replacement for Obamacare, and it's just incredibly difficult for them for them to do at this point because they're, con- they're that's exactly their concern is they don't want to take away health care for millions of people. That tends to be a bad political move, and which is why I at least am somewhat skeptical about the uh, the, the likelihood of them doing something big in terms of health care, even though that that would help them further down the road in terms of doing things on health on, on uh, sorry tax reform and other things. All right, next we have Che from Morgan Hill, California. All right. Che writes, I'm enjoying your latest episode as usual. I did, though, want to drop a quick note about your assertion that judges should interpret the law as is, even if that law is onerous or unethical. While that is a logical and defensible position, I would take issue with it. 
Specifically, I think it does not leave room for protection of the minority from the tyranny of the majority. That is, it lets the legislature create laws that enjoy majority support for which the minority cannot escape. Think Jim Crow, laws against gay marriage, etc. I think this is the crux of what the Democrats are trying to highlight in their arguments against the judge, in addition to the normal partisan kabuki theater. Namely, it is that it is sorry. It is that a judge who will not recognize the real-world power imbalance between large institutions and, and, and individuals. Is this a judge who is ideologically bound to the myth of the individual rational actor, or is this a judge who understands that the real world doesn't operate like an economics or a libertarian textbook? All That's right. A good question. Yeah. Um. So I know that was something that. Jay, both you and I agreed on that judges should, and judges are sort of bound to go by what the law says, even if it's onerous or unethical. And we were talking earlier, that was, I think, in regards to the, the frozen trucker thing, that was a big right. thing when, when uh, uh, Judge Gorsuch, now Justice Gorsuch, was, was, being, uh, was being confirmed. And both you and I said, well, unfortunately, this is a, this is a bad law. But there's nothing unconstitutional about it, and so he's kind of bound by that essentially. And so, right. and that's that's the key is is there can be plenty of uh, good policy things that are unconstitutional, uh, and there can be many things that are constitutional but are bad uh, in terms of they don't give us the result that we would like, or they they appear unjust. Um, and and I think that's that's where I'm coming from is that. There is this this carve out of uh, Congress. You know, there's there's deference to Congress uh, or the the state legislature uh, in in creating a law, and there's a presumption of constitutionality. Um, but there there are times when things are 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 not um, constitutional. But but that constitutionality needs to be determined not by the result that you end up with, uh, but but through these other tests. Um, that uh, the courts have that the courts have, have put in place and used for you know for 200 230 years now um you know and and i think that's that's where where i'm coming down and 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 the my argument was and i think what gorsuch said is listen if you're if your results always uh match up with your policy inclinations then you're not being a very good judge um so and I, and I think I think that Mike, you can you can go for a while here. I don't want to well, step on you here, but you know I I understand I think what Jay's saying and that it certainly seems and I would agree that there are times when the legislature when a legislative body creates laws that enjoy majority support that the minority is stuck with. Uh, and he mentions two things. He mentioned in, in his uh, in his email Jim Crow and laws against gay marriage. Now I would say that those are you could. People would argue that those are maybe two different sort of things. And, and the question, though, is, is, is that something that's prohibited by the Constitution? Because, of course, the Constitution prohibits certain types of, well, just prohibits discrimination against minority groups under certain grounds, under certain conditions. And in those, both of those cases, I would say, well, these are examples of minorities being unconstitutionally discriminated against. And when that happens, well— there, there is a constitutional remedy. Now, I think where, for instance, conservatives and liberals might differ in the gay marriage case, for instance, a lot of conservatives would say, 
hey, the Constitution says nothing about homosexuals exactly. being protected that, that, class. Yeah, it's a difference between uh, finding a constitutional right where none existed before. Right. Now, this is, Jay, where you and I might disagree a little yep. bit is, is I would say, well, and this is where some judges would say, well, you know, what is the sort of the, and you're going to hate this word, what is the spirit of this? What was the intent of the 14th Amendment? And they would say it's about, you know, discrimination against groups who are in a minority based on characteristics over which they have no control, like race, like sexual orientation, that sort of thing. Now, to a, to a sort of a literalist, a strict constructionist, that would just make them make their heads spin. And, and so I think that's where reasonable people can disagree. And so that's where I, I tend to agree more, probably more with Jay and less with you, Jay, is that uh, I say, well, what was the intent of the 14th Amendment? And I'm okay with uh, a judge or a justice saying, well, this is the intent, and so I'm going to apply that, but I'm not okay with uh, with a judge just sort of, or a justice kind of just going, just making up things out of whole cloth, essentially. Yeah, let, me, let me throw out an example, and that is uh, some of our, our federal criminal laws, especially, let's say, drug penalties. Um, I, I, From a, a practical standpoint, I think you can argue that they uh, have not done what they were intended to do. Uh, and in many cases, you have people who receive sentences that are are unjust because we have what are called federal sentencing guidelines uh, that require certain sentences. Um, you know, so so you have uh, folks who, you know, you can say, look, is, is this right that this person is serving this much time uh, for this minor offense? Um, and. And my answer is no, it's, it's not right. Uh, then the second question, was it constitutional? Well, yeah, it is constitutional. Uh, the legislature certainly has the power to, to uh, put that law in place. It was uh, uh, applied fairly. Um, and, you know, these, it's, it's then up to the citizens. If you're going to have self-government, uh, there's going to be some responsibility eventually for citizens to say, look, this is wrong, let's fix it. Uh, as opposed to just relying on a judge uh, or judges to sort of correct all the legislature's failures. Because if you have that, then you, you don't really have self-government. You've yeah. got government by a, uh, a handful of appointed judges. Yeah, and I think that that's a point at which you and I largely agree is that who, where should the benefit of the doubt go? Should it go to a, a legislature that is democratically elected or should it go to uh, appointed judges? And, and and I certainly have a lot of sympathy for the idea that, that the, well, the benefit of the doubt it makes more sense in the long run, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, that that benefit of the doubt go to that democratically elected group. And I would say also that another reason for that is that the, the democratic process, while it's often slow, is self-correcting. Yeah. Uh, and it's more difficult to get that kind of self-correction in the judiciary. Yeah. All right. Finally, a question from Einar, who sent the following Facebook message to us. I'm a 15-year-old from Iceland. After the presidential elections, I got hooked on U.S. politics, and I think it's safe to say it takes up a major part of my life. I just finished reading A Fighting Chance by Elizabeth Warren. She makes remarks on regulating the banks and deregulating. I do understand that conservatives want to deregulate often, but liberals want to regulate more. From my view, I understand more financial regulation, but I don't understand conservatives always wanting more deregulation. Is it because regulation is a burden on the economy, or is it because of the power of lobbyists and big banks? Jay, I think you should take this one at least to start. 
Sure. Well, first of all, Einar, I, I'm, I am completely blown away that someone in Iceland is listening to us. Um, so thank you. Uh, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, that's really cool. Um, you know, I think, I think the answer is yes and yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's both. It's, it's because uh, conservatives are philosophically opposed to more regulation. Um, the idea underlying conservatism, free market uh, economics, is that uh, if the government steps out, the markets will find solutions. They'll find more creative solutions. Uh, they'll find better ways to finance things. Money will flow more freely through the economy. Uh, there is less cost uh, to to businesses, which results in essentially lower prices, or in this case, uh, you know, be more availability of of credit, money, interest, so for, or, uh, lower interest rates, um, and you you get you get better better products. Um, so that's that's the the philosophical argument. Now, are there there are folks whose self interest lines up with that philosophy? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and they're going to show up, and they're going to they're going to lobby uh, for less regulation. Um, but uh, you know, I think you know the, again the way I look at this is so much of the economic uh, dynamism uh, that we've seen uh, in America, but throughout the West, uh, occurred in, in during periods of of lower regulation um, when people were free to to come up with their own ideas and 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 move forward with their own dreams. And I, again, I'm not someone. Mike, you would attest to this. I'm not someone who argues against any regulation, um, but that uh, sort of the the government that governs least governs best uh, is perhaps sort of the the mantra and sort of the, the the starting point from from where a lot of conservatives come from. Yeah, and you know, I I share a lot of those beliefs with you, Jay. As you know, uh, I, I think certainly that there are instances in which government overregulates, and I think uh, that overregulation can be a drag on economic growth and so forth. And, you know, but I think there are, there are a few concepts to consider here. One is is something called uh, crony capitalism, right? And crony capitalism, of course, when, as you said, these sort of big interests, uh, their interests sort of line up with deregulation, even though it might not be in the interest of the broader economy. And, and I think when that happens is, is, you know, a lot of big companies, well, all companies try to avoid competition. We might like competition as consumers, but they would prefer a a situation where they don't have competition, where they can set prices wherever they want, where government supports them, bails them out, all that sort of thing. And that is my concern and a lot of people's concern with the financial industry is that we essentially over the last 30 years set up a system where we, number one, allowed them to take a lot of big risks with billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. And also we basically told them, Hey, if things fall apart, we'll make sure that we we've got your back on that. When that's, that's a, that's a horrible idea, right? It's like telling, it's like sending someone to Vegas and saying, here, here's a million dollars and, you know, do what you want with it. And if you lose it all, we'll just give you another million dollars. It's just, that's just insane. Certainly. And, but I mean, that's, that's what, yes, the bankers call a moral hazard. Yeah. And so I think there are some markets that, well, generally speaking, Jay, you know, you're right. There's nothing better than markets to increase prosperity and growth and make people's lives better as a general rule. But there are also instances where markets can fail or they there are imperfections in markets. And that those are instances where government can legitimately step in and make things better. But of course, on the other hand, there's also what's called government failure that you have to consider as well. And so, you know, it's, it's, 
I think you have to take a look at this, not just on an industry by industry basis, but, but on a case by case basis. So I tend to be uncomfortable with people who say we need more regulation or less regulation. I think we need smarter and more appropriate regulation. And in some industries, that's going to mean more. And in fact, in some parts of some industries, we talked about this, I, I think on the Sunday show, like for instance, with Dodd-Frank, I think it probably didn't regulate huge institutions enough, but I think it regulated community banks too much. And so it's not more or less, it's more appropriate or less appropriate, I think is what we need to take. Well, there's, a look there's at. also the sort of the other side of the coin of crony capitalism. And we talked about this on the Sunday show of where you have a, a uh, some the big players in the industry who will sign up and say, listen, I'm I'm all for these regulations. Uh, and the the uh, result of those regulations is to price out uh, yeah. potential competitors mm -hmm. to increase the uh, the price of entry into a market. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, not too long ago here in America, I don't know if they have this in Iceland yet, but, you know, food trucks, it's it's a big deal. I mean, people have these big trucks and they drive around and they sell tacos or or whatever. And it's always like really good stuff and it's handy and convenient. Um we had a, a situation in the city of Cleveland where the city said, okay, well, we're not going to let you do this. We're going to deregulate you. And you say, all right, that sounds fair enough. Um, you know, we ought to have uh, food regulated. Uh, but then it was, okay, you got to buy a license and you got to buy this. And well, then you can only be at this place and only this place in certain hours. And it was, it was largely dictated by other competitors uh, who didn't want uh, that competition out there. Uh, and, and that happens in, in a lot of industries. Uh, if, if, okay, well, yeah, I want to open uh, this sort of thing. Well, okay, first you have to have this much space and we got to check the building for this and we got to have licensed for this. And uh, you have to provide these benefits if you have this many employees and, and so forth. And what it does is it, it's, it stymies the potential competitors from getting into the market and, and allows uh, the bigger players to, to uh, exercise sort of a, um, if not monopolistic, at least a uh, agopolistic sort of sort of power. And that's that's sort of the conservative view of of why less regulation is better uh, in that, look, if these if these companies are, are unregulated, yeah, some of them are going to be bad. some of some of the food is going to be terrible. Um, but over time, that's going to work its way out because the market will sort it out. Uh, those those businesses won't survive. Well, yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying, but of course, it's one thing no, for again, the food to be terrible. The financial industry is something a little different because yeah. that's a different, that's a, a different beast, and it's sort of, sort of interwoven with the rest of the economy, as opposed to just you know whatever Joe's taco truck. But. Yeah, well, I, I think you don't though agree that it's one thing for the food to be terrible, another thing for the food to make people sick. Uh, you know, but sure, sure. but but. You know, your larger point, you're absolutely right. And I think part of the problem is, is that oftentimes policymakers are only hearing from the one side with the deep pockets and so forth. And so they're the people who are working full time professionally to make the most compelling arguments. And the other side, just they're just not really heard from as much. And so it's not like, you know, the lawmakers are twirling their mustaches and, you know, evilly plotting to destroy the little guy necessarily. It's that their voices just aren't being heard. And that's, you know, that's a constant frustration. And so I get that's why, you know, conservatives, a lot of uh, good, decent conservatives like Jay are saying, well, maybe the thing to do is just to, yeah, no problem, to regulate less across the board, I think that comes with its own 
problem, certainly, but but certainly that's that's been an, an asymmetry for well, really forever. Is that the people with the biggest budgets are the ones who tend to use the government process through what uh, economists call rent seeking to make their money not in an honest way by creating a better product for people, but by essentially trying to push their competitors or potential competitors out using government to do that. And I think that's something- or the government require that you buy their product. Yeah, just yo, you know, a whole other story. Okay, a little healthcare dig in there, but but yeah. So Jay, you and I definitely both, I think, agree in many cases on that. Mm. All right. Well, if you have a thank com- you, Einar. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. And if you have a comment, question, or correction for us, you can send us an email. We're at mail at politicsguys.com, or you can message us on the Facebook Politics Guys page. And while we won't read every email on the air, we definitely will personally respond to every listener email and Facebook message that we get. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. If you've got a question, comment, correction, if you just want to say, Hey guys, our email mail at politicsguys.com, our Facebook page where you can message us and we'll repost throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. If you'd like to support yourself financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website, politicsguys.com. If you're already a financial supporter or if money's just kind of tight, you can help us out by just subscribing to the show and leaving ratings on your podcast app or just sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets. That really helps us expand the listener base, get more listeners, donations, advertisers, and that's what keeps the makes it possible for us to keep on doing the show. And finally, speaking of advertisers, we hope you check out our sponsor of today's show, Dollar Shave Club, dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG, where for a limited time, new members get an executive razor, a month's worth of cartridges, and a tube of Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only five bucks with free shipping. Again, that's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you'll join us.